Hi, everyone. In honor of the show coming up on Saturday, March 9th at 3 at Caveat NYC, I'm going to be releasing the uh, patron-only episode that uh, me, Liv, and Josh had uh, a while back. It's one of our uh, classic After Dark episodes, and I'm putting it out for free so everyone gets a taste of how good this episode, how good this live show is going to be. Um, I think you're really going to enjoy it, and if you haven't gotten tickets yet, you can get them at bit.ly slash nocartridgesawyer. I think you're going to really want them. If not now, then right after you hear this episode, it's going to be a really, really nice night, and you really should get them ahead of time. They're cheaper than at the door, um, and cheaper if you're a patron. So if you're a patron, go check the Patreon for a discount link. If you are not yet a patron go to patreon.com slash no cartridge and you can um get a, pa- get a patron link now if you join uh so thanks enjoy the show and i will see you again for all new material next week Welcome to No Cartridge After Dark. This is uh, Trevor Strunk. I'm Hagelbon on Twitter, and I'm here with uh, Olivia, as always, who is now um, AV, uh, AV Club on Twitter, A-V-E-Y Club. Uh, good job with the new app. Thank you. Uh, it was a group effort. <laughs> and uh, and with us, we have we have a, a, a guest, a very very uh, welcome guest, Josh Sawyer of uh, well, you're of many things. You're of Obsidian. Um, people know you from Fallout. Uh, what else do people know you from? Um, I worked at Black Isle Studios, um, where I got my start on the Icewind Dale games. Cool. And then, yeah, I thought, uh, I thought that was right. I didn't want to guess off the top of my head without your bio in front of me. Yeah. So yeah, I worked on Icewind Dale one and two, and then um, at Obsidian, I worked on Neverwinter Nights two, Fallout New Vegas, and then Pillars of Eternity one and two. Cool. Um. Well, that's a, I mean, obviously a, a fairly robust CV, um, but thanks for coming on, man. Um, thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Uh, so we usually start this thing, start this thing out, uh, or we have been recently by asking you about your gaming history. Uh, sure. so how you got into gaming, um, what you sort of played as a kid, um, what generation of gaming you started out in, uh, just like, like walk us through that walk us through uh your your discovery of gaming sure um i think the first sort of the first non sort of regular board games that i started playing um i started playing video games on an atari 2600 my brother's atari 2600 um primarily pitfall combat and adventure cool and I really loved adventure as a kid. And I remember um, I, I thought I had sort of mastered adventure at age five. 
And then I remember trying to show it off to like a room full of my parents' friends who were not interested at all. <laughs> and then somehow I screwed it up and got eaten by one of the duck dragons. And I got super mad and like stormed out of the room and everyone laughed at me. So um, that was great. Yeah, really. Um, slapstick routine. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then after that, um, I we couldn't afford a personal computer, but I had uh, there were personal computers at the public library. There were personal computers at my school. And I had some friends who had PCs. And I remember watching people play a variety of games. I played Oregon Trail. I played The Dark Tower on the Apple II. And then um, I remember seeing a kid at the local library on a Commodore 64. And he was playing something that I thought was just... So actually, let me let me back up a little bit. I had been playing basic Dungeons and Dragons and expert Dungeons and Dragons with a friend of mine. He had been playing Ultima and Wizardry on his PC. And this was cool. CGA, four color, I think was CGA. Um, so it was relatively primitive and the sound was not great, but I was like, oh, this is so cool. Um, and then I remember going to the library and seeing a guy playing Bard's Tale on the Commodore 64, this older kid. And Commodore 64 at the time was like advanced shit. Um, like the colors were really nice. The sound was way better than on um, the PCs that I had seen. And I was just like, wow, this is incredible. This is like, this is like Dungeons and Dragons on a computer and it's awesome. And then I started hanging out with that older kid whose name was Tony and he and his friends were playing advanced Dungeons and Dragons, which I did not even know was a thing. Um, this was in the mid eighties. And so I started playing AD and D first edition. And then by the late eighties, I was playing the gold box games, uh, which are pool of radiance, uh, curse of the Azure bonds, uh, secret of the silver blades, all that stuff. Cool. And it just kind of went on from there. And I've been, I've been playing a combination of, tabletop role-playing games and computer role-playing games and other video games ever since. Nice. Um, can you talk to us a little bit? I'm, I'm, I'm curious. So like, I know a lot of people who play both um, and, and there are people, you know, in the no cartridge community who play a bunch of like varied things. Uh, they'll play like, you know, massively complicated uh, tabletop games and then also be really into like a wide variety of, of games and uh, like video games, traditional video games. And like, that's never really been me. I've never been able to, I, I've, I've enjoyed tabletop when I've been able to, but I've never really had like a group of friends who've been super into it. Um, Liv, do you tabletop role play? No, we've even like talked about that. Like I, I've always wanted to, but always felt too intimidated to just cause like I never even had like friends who played video games growing up. So I definitely didn't have friends who played tabletop RPGs, but I would like to. Like, yeah, I mean, Josh, do you, what, what, what's the connection between those, do you think? Like, do you think generally the people who like playing, you know, something like, uh, well, something like Bard's Tale even, which is way more textual uh, or way more text-based than a lot of even the RPGs of, of today, um, like, do you think um, there's an easy link between that and tabletop or are they kind of like different animals? Um, they're pretty different, but I think for my generation at least, I'm, I mean, I was born in the in the mid-70s. And I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin that was about 10,000 people. And one of the things that's very difficult for people who are interested in tabletop role-playing games, as you guys kind of indicated, is 
uh, it can be hard to find people. Um, today, it's way easier because of all the online virtual tabletops, things like mm. Roll20. Roll20 is really great. Uh, Fantasy Grounds is really great. Um, there are all these virtual tabletops that make finding playing games remotely way easier. Um, like I even every once in a while, I'm actually missing a session tonight. Um, <laughs> I have, really? Yeah, I play with wow, some I play I, I play irregularly with some of my friends back in Wisconsin, um, people that I grew up playing D&D with. But um, it's so much easier now to find people to play with, drop in sessions, things like that. But growing up in a small town, uh, it was very hard to find people to play with. And so the appeal of, you know, the, at least the Western PC based CRPGs was that you didn't need to find people to play with. Um, mm -hmm. It's not the same experience. It's really a very different sort of experience, but the trappings are very similar and the fantasy is very similar. So you get the aesthetic and you get the mechanics without getting the social, dynamic or the collaborative storytelling that you would get in a tabletop environment. So it's not the same thing, but it's, it's a way to kind of, for someone who's really into the, the genre and the idea of it, it was a way for us to sort of play without having friends around, um, which was pretty cool. Nice. I feel like, um, oh. oh, go ahead, please. Well, I was actually going to ask you a question, Liv. So you go ahead. <laughs> well, I was just going to uh, say like we've talked about this a lot recently i don't know i guess this is something that's like kind of important to my gaming experience it's like you mentioned that you're playing uh your brother's console like is that like an important part of your uh, relationship with siblings um no i wouldn't say so it's interesting because my brother was sort of um i mean i think he got his 2600 in geez, I can't remember the first year it came out, but maybe 79 or 80. Um, and I think it was more... <sighs> video games in, in some ways were less niche then because it was kind of like, look at this new thing that we can do. Um, like we also, now that I think about it, we also did have Pong, um, which was its own... I don't know if you guys know this, but it was like its own... Uh, like not really console, but it was like its own apparatus. It was like its own game, like a device that you bought, like you have bought pong and now you can plug in the pong and play it. Like there was one big paddle that was kind of like the game plus the controller. And then there was another paddle that was for the other person to play on. Cool. So we had that, we had that, but it was kind of like, they're almost more like toys than kind of the sub genre of entertainment that they are now. So I think my brother, got it because it was just kind of like well here's a cool new thing and my brother is not really interested in in video games now um and he's quite a bit older than me so i think that i mean my brother played the atari 2600 when it came out but really i think i became far more fixated on it um at the time did you like um does anyone in your family uh like video games like i i mean you know it's it's not I'm sure on some level, like being a, uh, a celebrity of sorts in gaming communities, is it really recognized by, you know, your grandma or whatever, right? Like your, your older relatives probably don't recognize this as much. Um, but does anyone, does anyone play your games in the family? Is, is, is anyone up on them? Um, I think my brother tried playing new Vegas and couldn't really get into it, but he's not mm. really like into games. Um, 
I think that my nephew kind of appreciates it, but he's into very different types of games. Um, he's, I think he's 15 now, 14 or 15. Okay. Um, so mostly so, Fortnite. Yeah, um, actually he's like into, into, he's into a lot of, um, more kind of like experimental and weird games, I think, or at least that's what my sister tells me. But yeah, I don't think my sister was really into the idea of my nephew playing Fall of New Vegas as like a 10 year old or whatever. So, um, <laughs> so he's like, he's aware of it, but also I don't think he really gives a shit. Like the sort of games that I make are not things that I think he or maybe his peer group really care about. <laughs> so my parents, my parents are very proud of me, but my parents have always been very proud of me. So Aww, they've always been sweet. very, very supportive. So, um, I, I think they're glad that I'm doing well. Uh, you know, they're interested whenever, you know, there's like an interview or something with me, but, um, you know, it's, it's, my family is not really a, a gaming family. So, <laughs> you know what they say, the family that games together, <laughs> uh, live, um, you sort of have like a gaming family of sorts, but do you think that I think that's a stretch <laughs> you, because all your brothers, um, but I was going to ask, did you guys ever, and have you ever, I know you've played a lot of earthbound. But other than that, like, are you, have you been ever really been an RPG person? Um, whenever I was like in elementary school, like my brother would just like download like a ton of like JRPGs to like our, our emulator. And so like I would play a lot of them for like a couple hours, but never really involving myself too, too much in them. Um, I mean, hmm. I'm trying to think if I played really anything until uh, like, wow, a ton. Um, I don't know. Maybe not. I'll have to think about it. Hmm. Josh, what do you think about like, what do you think about MMOs? Like, like, wow. I mean, how do they not, not like a judgment call, but like, how do they relate to the kind of writing and directing you do? Cause I, I always think back to this um, probably maybe even apocryphal story about uh Planescape torment when uh, Chris Avalon was saying that like the actual dialogue used in the story itself, uh, you know, if printed out or when printed out or whatever, like the, the book they were using was like a massive tome. Like as long as, you know, your, yeah. your various Finnegan's wakes and stuff. Um, and on some level, the dialogue in an MMO, like, wow, would be even more in terms of quantity, but would be very different. So I wonder like how you see your work, if it, if it sort of dovetails with things like MMOs or if it's like a, a different kind of genre altogether. It's something I've thought about a lot, just like in terms of, you know, a fan of writing and video games. Um, they're pretty different. Um, you know, there may be some aesthetic similarities in some ways or, you know, genre convention similarities, but uh, it pretty much ends there. Um, there are very few MMOs that try to do anything resembling reactivity or, um, you know, player choice and dialogue. Maybe the most notable example is the Old Republic, which Bioware Austin did. Mm -hmm. um, most MMOs really are focusing on it on, again, it's more of like the trappings and the aesthetic and some of the mechanical aspects, but not really on the sort of stuff that I focus on in directing and writing is trying to create experiences that 
can't, I mean, you can't really fully capture the spirit of a tabletop environment where you have other players and all that other stuff. But what we try to do with a game like Fallout New Vegas or a game like um, Pillars of Eternity is give you a wide range of ways to play through a story um, and mechanically interact with the world, complete quests in different ways, mm. mechanically com complete quests in different ways in terms of taking sides, resolving things violently or nonviolently, using stealth or aggression, all these various things. So we're trying to really make you feel like, hey, you have you as, a, as the central character of the story, or if not the central character, a very prominent mover and shaker in this story, you really have a lot of agency to push on the story and make it your own. Like the way that I think about it is that the story is half ours and half the players. A lot of what we think about is what would a player want to do right now that would be satisfying and enjoyable to do? Hmm. Um, we don't want to let them do everything all the time, but if we don't really think about letting them do things that seem cool or interesting and sometimes surprising things they might not expect to do, uh, then we're not, we're not really living up to the fantasy where it's kind of like I'm playing through a tabletop game as though there were a DM here and all my friends are playing the companions and I'm, but I'm the central character. And so the hmm. way we look at it is, is really focused on your role in a larger story and on MMO, you know, sometimes it has the trappings of like pretending like you're the hero, but that illusion is very shallow um, because it's a world full of hundreds of thousands of heroes <laughs> and you're all kind of doing the same stuff. And so it doesn't really, it doesn't have the same impact. And, and so dialogues and writing are more for aesthetic immersion than for, um, you know, the purpose that we write it for here at Obsidian. Yeah, you know, that's kind of how I felt. Um, so uh, Olivia uh, introduced me to, to WoW for the first time a few months back. It was, it was actually like super interesting to me. I'd never played it before because I was too worried I'd get addicted. Mm -hmm. um, like, I just kind of stuck to RPGs that had endings um, as yeah, just knowing that I might fall face first into it. And um, that kind of reminds me of like going to your first town in WoW, that, that break in... Um, it's a break in a kind of fantasy that you can have that you're the, you're the main hero. Like you immediately see all these people there and you're like, Oh, these people are also playing the exact same game. Like this is, this is a huge, huge game. Whereas in like a game, like in a game like pillars, like when you go to a town for the first time, it's like you meet people and you, you, you expand the story, but you still are in control. Um, I totally get what you're saying. That, that, that does, does. And I sense. don't even think that even in wow, like you can kind of think of yourself as the hero, but I think that the things in the story where like a couple of times they've done these things where they really try to assert that you're the hero. And I don't think that it works out well. And I don't think that people like it whenever they're like, okay, you're given like this one legendary weapon. And people are like, why would I get this one legendary weapon? You know, like I got, I got 24 <laughs> people behind me that also need this or like, um, whenever like these massive, uh, wow heroes are like okay well like the these like dragon powers are like oh well we're gonna um we're gonna like pull back on our dragon powers and really let the human shine or really let the mortal shine and, and all the player characters are like we don't need the mortals to shine like we need these dragon heroes like i don't know i don't want to be the hero in wow i don't want to be the one hero or so i think that's also mm. different 
Yeah, I mean that makes sense. I guess I guess the the thing I keep thinking about between MMOs and and CRPGs, and, and it's something that's very different between CRPGs and JRPGs, is like this emphasis on choice, right? I, I know, like when I started New Vegas, um, and I, I never did finish it. I, I have to admit, um, and it, it it eats me up because everyone always tells me how like I should finish it and that um, I should at least meet the guy who uh, reads a lot of Hegel. Um, (laughs) since, uh, you know, everyone always asks me with that. And I, I did love it when I was playing it. Um, but what intimidated me about it, what, what sort of like threw me about it and what was also at the same point, super fascinating was all the directions you can take. Like this, this element of, of choice often throws me. Um, and it's something that kind of throws me in an MMO as well, where it's like, and if you probably remember me, like asking you a million questions where it, you know, leveled me up and said, okay, which direction do you want to go? It's like, well, what direction? And the answer, you know, it doesn't really matter. Just do what seems fun is something that's so hard for me to, to deal with. Cause I'm used to like being put on rails and, and put through a story. Cause those were the, the, like I grew up with like final fantasy and then um, chrono trigger and uh, even, you know, JR, uh, JRPGs on the NES. And like that, that element of choice is very, intimidating in almost the same way between CRPGs and MMOs for me. I think that there's, um, I've had conversations with some designers there. I have a disagreement with, with some other designers about what makes interesting choice or what makes sort of paralytic shrug your shoulders choice. And I think that often when presented with choices that don't really have any, any value that the player can discern in them, then it becomes kind of a paralytic thing or like a who cares choice. So there are, there are a few games where it says like, you can go in one of five directions and there's no real, like in making that choice, you're not saying anything about your character. You're not even picking something necessarily out of um, an aesthetic interest or a preference or anything like that. It's just like, you can go to, you can go to flimsel or fleasel or flobble or flubel. And you're like, okay, I don't <laughs> like, I don't know what the significance of any of those things are. I just know that they're four names and I can, I can go to any one of them. And personally, I think that that is one, it's not particularly compelling. Um, two, the player doesn't really know the significance of if there is a significance to picking one over another. Mm-hmm. Um, I much prefer, obviously in an open world game, um, for example, like landmarking is something that we learned by looking at Fallout 3. Fallout 3 did a very good job of using visual landmarks. And while you don't necessarily know what the the what the what the aesthetics of a given visual landmark uh, indicate, I think that players sense more of a push or pull depending on what they see. Like so for example, if you see a giant dinosaur, you may feel more compelled to go investigate that. If you see, you know, like a big ruined tower, some players might find that more compelling. Um, but there's, there's like something to it that can be a little more contextually uh, driving. And I think that there are also games where you're told, hey, you can pick between these four things, go to them in whatever order, but the order in which you pick them, like, you know, there's going to be consequences if you, you know, if you emphasize this faction over this other faction, then this other faction is going to dislike you. Mm. And so if there is some sort of value, if, if the factions have a certain worldview or they have a certain aesthetic or something that the player can latch onto and go like, 
you know what, if I got to pick between these two, I'm going to pick these guys or these folks. Um, then it feels like more of a, uh, like an interesting choice as opposed to just like a choice without context. Um, and that's a fine line because you want to let the player kind of do what they want to do, but for players to, I think, find value in that there need to be values in the choices themselves. Mm. That makes sense. Liv, do you feel that that happens in, um, in MMOs too? Do you feel like there's like a, a sort of like value decision in choices or is it? Well, I mean, there's no, there's no like story based decisions in wow at all. Um, really never. Uh, no, I mean, you can kind of, it's all character based. Yeah. Like directly to play. And you can kind of think of it that way that if you like choose a specialization for your character and you get involved with your character, then like, um, you can think of it that way that the talents that they choose are a reflection on that, but it's not built into the game. And so like, I do that. Like I have, um, <laughs> I have like three or four like max level druids cause they each have their own specialization, even though really one of them could do all of the play of each specialization. Um, just because I associate it with the character. Right. Um, but that is not, it. you know, that's not in the game. It's uh, mm. something that you do outside of the game. I don't know. Hmm. I mean, that's uh, so that reminds me of something that it, it's actually like. So I'll ask you, I'll ask you this, and then I'll ask you the lore question because I, I don't know if you find this, but I have found that everyone who wants to talk to me about New Vegas and everyone who has asked me to get you on the podcast, Josh, has um, has brought up the fact that New Vegas and in in, in specific and your work in general has like this sort of like political. Um, edge and like new vegas in terms of the factions like there seem to be all of these choices you can make as like you know what what world outside of society you the player would want to see um do you feel like political choices happen within or or without the game like do you feel like put it this way do you think you can make like a, a player can consistently make um, without, you know, barring, you know, completion runs or whatever, um, choices that are opposed to their politics and feel like they're playing the game honestly? Or do you think those two things go hand in hand? Um, uh, different people role playing in different ways. Um, there are people who, whether you're talking about tabletop or you're talking about a CRPG, there are players who find it very enjoyable to play people who are very unlike them. There are mm. players who find it very interesting to play a wide variety of, of characters. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know how far you ever got in, um, in new Vegas, but there are two characters that I played in the fallout tabletop game that Chris Avalon re- ran at black Isle studios that wound up as characters in new Vegas. One of them is arcade Ganon okay. uh, who wound up as a companion and the other is Jean-Baptiste Cutting, who is a member of the Van Graaff, uh, like, energy weapon consortium. And Jean-Baptiste Cutting is a really miserably awful, terrible human being. <laughs> um, and I'm, and he is very, very much unlike me in many, many ways. Um, he like a great human being. Um, Arcade is someone that I fi- have a lot more sympathy with and commonality with. Um 
but I liked playing both of those characters. And so I like playing a wide, although sometimes if I start playing like really nasty characters, uh, other players might have problems with that. So I try to temper that to the taste of the people at the, at the table. But, um, you know, when we look at what sort of characters we allow people to play, um, you know, there are, you know, there are people who will say, I would never like their political beliefs are completely opposed to, for example, Caesar's Legion, but they want to do a, uh, they want to play this really, you know, nasty character who um, supports the Legion and pursues a Legion sort of agenda or a person who considers themselves very interested in, you know, democratic principles, but they want to do a, they play a character who's like a crazy capitalist who supports Mr. House. Um, So some people, some people really have uh, an easier time separating their own beliefs uh, from their, their, the way they play a character. And um, yeah. And so I think you just find a range of things, but I do, one of the things that I really like about making these sorts of games, and I think I've succeeded more on certain games than others. Like I think I succeeded more at this with new Vegas than for example, either of the pillars of eternity games is I like when players can see something in the game choices that reflects to things that they sort of understand about the way that the world either seems to work now or works or has worked historically. And that sort of shapes their understanding. It makes them sort of think about things in real world terms and say like, oh, is this like the real world or is this not like the real world? Mm. And if it's, if it is, or if it isn't like, what's like, what's fantastic about this setting that wouldn't fly in the real world. I like the idea that when a person steps away from the game, they feel like they played a character and made choices, but that it also made them think more about how they make choices in the real, real world. Um, Because I think that it's important that people can use these games as ways to sort of escape. Um, I've received as, as I think a lot of people who make role-playing games have received a lot of letters from people who, you know, they wind up in really dark places in their lives and being able to play games. And in a lot of cases, role-playing games where they can sort of take on this other persona, it, um, it just helps them survive, honestly, mm-hmm. in some cases, which is um, mo- very moving and not the thing that I necessarily set out to do when I make, make these games. But, um, but I also like the idea that people, when they're done and kind of go back to, <laughs> back to interacting with other human beings, um, that maybe they thought a little bit more about politics and colonialism and, you know, all sorts of stuff that, uh, they wouldn't necessarily have examined if they hadn't played the game, which might sound crazy, but no, um, I think that sounds reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, it, it actually reminds me of something that my advisor wrote, but this is the, uh, this is the non-academic podcast. So I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll send you that piece. Um, okay. <laughs> about genre and, and politics. Um, but I was curious, um, I wanted to ask, uh, so this is, this is the, the politics lore question. Sure. Are the followers of the apocalypse, and I'm reading this verbatim from, uh, my fallout new Vegas, uh, fanatic, uh, listener, um, meant to be a narco communist. So are the followers of the apocalypse meant to be a narco communist, they seem really big on solidarity, anti-imperialism, mutual aid, voluntary association, and breaking hierarchies. Um, is the fact that Caesar was a follower and familiar with Hegelian dialectics and dialectical materialism 
supposed to imply that the followers do some sort of leftist political education. What do you think? Uh, seems to me that that would be the case. I mean, I think like Caesar could certainly, you know, since he has, since he seems apart in, in some ways, um, from, from a leftist perspective, I mean, there's a dialectical way of reading that. Um, I don't know. I, I think I've read the, I'll say Fallout New Vegas is one of the only games that I have actually read a consistent left politics into. Like, I think a lot of it, I'll, I'll do it academically i'll do it aesthetically but it's one of the only games where i can say yeah i think the intention here was to produce anarcho-syndicalism or i think that the intention here was to produce a sort of left communism or, or liberalism or you know fascism um so i think it seems plausible right on <laughs> you did the thing you did the author thing where you where the the answer is whatever the reader wants it to be well, I mean, I, I think that which is cool. In making, I, I, I'm in, in making, in making games like this, <laughs> yeah, in making games like this, I I think it would it would really take an enormous amount away from the experience of people if I weighed in on. I mean, there are certain things that I have said because I think that it really came off the wrong way. Like there are certain things with Caesar's Legion that just we didn't execute on well enough. Um, and I'll take responsibility for that, mm. but, um, Caesar's Legion didn't get, it didn't get the amount of content that it needed. Um, and so there was, uh, there was a lot of nuance that was lost to them, which is not to sort of say that it would make them incredible or anything, but, um, a lot of like, you know, there's still <laughs> Caesar's Legion, but a right. lot of people saw them like, so the whole idea with with the way that these I can say that with all these factions, at least the major factions, the idea is that as you, I don't really find I I don't find twists particularly interesting in stories. Um, usually, I think they're kind of uninteresting. Um, what I like is uh, turns. I mean, that's what I referred to them during the development of Fallout New Vegas. The idea that you get something at a face value that is not inaccurate, but it is not nuanced. So, for example, you encounter the NCR very early on in Fallout New Vegas, and the intended sort of, you know, vibe because of how they're presented is like, wow, these guys are kind of disorganized. Um, they're representing a democratic sort of republic that seems like it's kind of based on the United States government a little bit. Um, and uh, they seem to be like, trying to do something out of um, altruism and a desire to, you know, extend, you know, liberty and equal rights to people and things like that. Um, and then over time, as you start to encounter more, especially higher up people in the NCR, you start to uh, get a sense that there's a lot of corruption. There's a lot of really petty stuff going on, especially mm -hmm. in the upper ranks of them. And so it's, uh, it's really corrupt and screwed up and it has a lot of problems and that, that turn of understanding, um, is very intentional. Um, and so with Caesar's Legion, you know, they're pretty awful. <laughs> Your <laughs> yeah, initial encounters with sure. them are, are, they're, they're just doing all this really nasty stuff. Um, that's sort of undeniable, like they're crucifying people and the way they treat women is absolutely awful and all these other things. Um, 
and then when you get to Caesar, Caesar really talks a big talk. I mean, Caesar's the guy who talks all about um, Hegelian dialectics and progress. I've been, and I've been sent that sort screenshot of, so many times. Yeah, and um, <laughs> but but the thing is, like a lot of people, you know, given how severe their actions are prior to that point, it's pretty hard for a lot of people to accept, you know, kind of what people are suggesting, which is like, oh well, you know, in Caesar's lands, at least you know things are are chill. Like, <laughs> as long as you don't rock the boat, you know, it's like Pax Romana stuff. Sure. Like, you know, as long as you're you're chill, you don't get messed with very much, and. Um, and also there's like, there's this very um, awful sort of institutionalized misogyny in Caesar's legion that where basically Caesar's like, I don't really give a shit how good you are at anything else. I need legionaries. And so every woman that, that we capture is going to, you know, basically be responsible for giving birth to more legionaries. And for him, it's this really insanely awful like method of just making more soldiers for the future. Right. Um, but the way that most other legionaries were written, it came across as this very like, you know, like loathing of women and just hatred of women, um, which is in some ways less psychotic than what Caesar is doing, where he's sort of saying like, well, you know, like, if I could have my male legionaries give birth to, you know, other legionaries, then I would just have them do it as well. Yeah, just make more legionaries um, for everyone. Yeah, like, I mean, because that's all he's like, well, I just need, I need more soldiers. Um, so for him, it's it's this very, like, practical and awful in its practicality. Um, but the way that it came across in the writing for other legionaries is like this, like, oh, women, like, which is... So there's a lot of stuff that was not really executed the way that I wanted it to be with the legion. Um, it's my responsibility because I just, it fell through the cracks. Mm -hmm. So, um, I have talked about the, the way in which that wasn't executed properly, but, um, as far as most of the other stuff, like people always ask me, like, what's the canonical ending? And I'm like, well, I'm not, I'm certainly not going to say that, especially if I'm not required to <laughs> by working on another game or like, what's my favorite ending or things like that. I just don't say that stuff because, as much as I would like to believe that fans wouldn't read too much stuff into that, they always do. And so I just step back and say like, you know, well, sometimes I'll say like, well, these are things that these characters say. So for example, you know, if you see a lot of evidence that the followers of the apocalypse behave in a certain way, you know, why not conclude on your own that, you know, whether it's my intent or not, that's how they behave. Um, Right. And yeah, I, I guess that's the thing is like whatever's in the game is in the game and you can conclude whatever you want from it. Um, but also the other thing is that whether I'm dealing with something like the Fallout world or something like uh, Pillars of Eternity, um, I want people to – oh, I want other designers in the future to have more freedom and flexibility. I don't want to uh, box them in with extra canonical pronouncements like – Ex cathedra, like I don't, I don't, I, I don't want to just say shit that then later, you know, fans put other developers on the hook for. Sure. I don't think that's fair for other people. So, um, you know, like let's say later on, um, Bethesda wants to do something with the followers of the apocalypse. First of all, that would be nice. Um, yeah, we'd love. That. I'd love to see more followers of the apocalypse. But second of all, I don't want to. 
unless I did something in the game or we did something in the game to sort of box them in, like whatever's in the game is in the game. And if they want to take a different direction with them, as long as it doesn't, you know, like I just, I, I want other people working in this creative environment to have the freedom to do that without me as a very well-known and influential person to poison that. Yeah. So that's why I would rather just like, you know, I love, I love that people talk about this stuff. Um, and I encourage people discussing this stuff because that's, that's one of the, my favorite parts about seeing the game out in the wild is especially with new Vegas, but also with, uh, especially dead fire as well. Um, seeing people kind of like argue their points back and forth and then you can see where the walls break down and now they're arguing about real world shit yeah, <laughs> and it gets really, really serious. I love that stuff. Um, no, it's great. so I very much encourage, I very much encourage it, but because I want to encourage that, I don't want to say anything definitive about it. That was a very long way of answering the question, but no, I think you get that's it. That's great. So I'm going to, I'm going to out you live as, as not having played fallout new Vegas. And I think this is okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> It's okay. I think it's all right. I think Josh has made it clear that that's okay. Um, yes. But what I want to say is uh, in, in New Vegas, there are all sorts of uh, factions you can basically join if, if you've been uh, sort of picking that up. And I would I would wonder, Josh, if, if, if Liv defi- describes her political ideas or sort of even her personal values, would you, su- would you suggest, would you tailor uh, one of the factions for her? Suggest which one might, might suit her best? Assuming, I mean... Unless you want to give birth to a lot of people, probably the uh, the Legion is out. Yeah, I mean, the Legion is this very, uh, you know, let's get more political. Um, so there was recently, someone was calling out, I think, Jordan Peterson, because he was giving these, like, really, like, sort of insane, <laughs> like, Nazi apologia, like, statements where he was saying, like... Wait, Jordan Peterson was? Yeah, That's like, like um, just, you know, it's the kind of, like, well... You know, given the state of the Weimar Republic and given all the communists and given the Jews, (laughs) therefore, you know, this ludicrous garbage. So um, but there's a lot of like rationalization of very severe things based on like necessity. Um, And that's really what Caesar's Legion is, is kind of like, well, if we don't care about anyone's rights at all and we don't really care about any individuals at all and we just care about these weird ideals of stability and safety as, you know, living under tyranny, then this is the group for you. Um, but yeah, if, 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 if Olivia wants to describe her, yeah, it's probably not going to be Caesar's Legion, but yes, I can, I can. <laughs> you love, you things. love security uh, as long as it takes away others' rights. I think that's, uh, <laughs> that's the main thing I <laughs> yeah, know about you. Liz. Absolutely. Sounds like me. Can you give me choices? Why don't you ask me questions that I can give you choices? Ooh, well, that's fun. Um, do, man, do you vow, do you think it's acceptable for, geez, how to go about this? Um, do you think it's okay or preferable for there to be a representative government that intercedes in um that has a standing military that intercedes in what are essentially foreign affairs ostensibly for the sake of protecting liberty and and promoting uh democratic values 
Uh, no, I do not believe so. Well, that would leave the NCR out. Um, do that's the New California Republic. New California Republic. Um, do you think? Th- mm, <laughs> I mean, I know, I know what the answer is going to be at the end of this. <laughs> like for, for both of you, I know what the answer would be for this. <laughs> without even really knowing you that well. Um, do you think that it is okay to have, um, let's see. Do you think it's acceptable to have a secure and stable environment with minimal restrictions on personal freedoms, except (laughs) love the except that except that there is a singular figure that can arbitrarily, uh, kind of just say, Oh God. At any point in time. (laughs) So basically it's sort of like, it's, it's a, uh, free society in the sense that, um, it's a free society that has, it doesn't have any social safety net. It's a free society. You can kind of do what you want. Um, but there is an overwatching authority that if you threaten the overwatching authorities authority, then you will be. Dealt <laughs> this with. sounds problematic. Probably by <laughs> yeah, that's what I figured. <laughs> Okay, so I would say that Mr. House. I was going to say, is that Mr. House that you're talking about? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so really, and we don't even need to go into Legion, so that a lot of people really wind up with um, the independent um, path, not necessarily because the outcomes are amazing, but because the, like, the premise by which life continues is so much less tolerable under the other alternatives, Mm. if that makes sense. Like, you know, if you're like, Oh, well, the NCR is incredibly corrupt and they're imperialistic under the, under the guise of some somewhat sincerely, somewhat naively to protect their neighbors. um, But they're very corrupt and there's lots of problems with imperialism and all this other stuff. Well, a lot of people say like, well, they're really corrupt. I don't want to really support them and they're being imperialistic. So I don't want to support them. And then you say, okay, well there's Mr. House and he pretty much wants to leave people alone, but also he doesn't really give a shit about people who don't fit into his society. Meaning that people who drop through the cracks literally drop out of Vegas. And he's like, well, fuck off (laughs) Um, and suffer and die outside my walls. Um, And then if at any point he decides that someone which is very rare, but at any point, if someone really crosses him or threatens him, he has no problem just saying like, well, fuck this person, like they're out. Um, And so a lot of people are like a lot of people, there's a point in the story where Mr. House is very like well-spoken and seems very reasonable. But then at a certain point in the story, he says, uh, I need you to go eliminate the Brotherhood of Steel, which is very upsetting to a lot of people because a lot of people love the Brotherhood of Steel. (laughs) And you can say like, well, what if I go talk to him and work it out? And he's like, mm, no, <laughs> fucking get rid of him. Cause he's like, they're, they're the only technological threat that I have. So I don't want them around. So just fucking get rid of them. And a lot of people go like, well, that's really severe. I don't like that. And then the third option is Caesar's Legion. 
And most people don't want that at all. Just instinctively, they're like, nope, fuck this. I don't care what Caesar says. <laughs> it's bad. And then so a lot of people go like, well, uh, I can choose a future where the people of New Vegas kind of self-govern in this loosely defined collective thing. And, um, and so a lot of people are just like, I find the premise of that much more appealing than anything else. And then they pick it. And then at the end of the game, they're like, well, they're free, but a lot of stuff's really fucked up and dysfunctional because there's not a strong authority and, and it kind of, everything is kind of slow and clumsy and that's just kind of how it goes. Um, and so people go like, well, that's not really great. And I'm like, well, they're free. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> the thing that you picked, but you, you picked it knowing that there wasn't really any sort of infrastructure in place and that there wasn't anything like ready to go. And so it's this nascent, fragile, very free, but very, you know, stumbling society that moves forward. And for many people, they're like, eh, I accept that. They're like, I, that's okay. Like, I know there are a lot of problems, but there are problems with all of these. And I would rather take the problems that are more day to day and sort of like, you know, growing pains rather than the problems that are intrinsic to, you know, awful governance and stuff mm. like that. Yeah, I've seen people call call the game like or accuse the game of leading you down a libertarian path as a result, which hearing you talk about it now does not seem to be the case. But I can um, see it. I, no, I don't. Yeah, I don't. I wouldn't really say. I, I guess it depends on how you how you think about libertarianism. But um, yeah, I mean, I would say that the independent ending, especially because usually the followers of the apocalypse are involved at that point. Um, I think something that is pretty easy to see from the followers of the apocalypse is that they are very concerned with the well-being of the least powerful people in society. Mm -hmm. That's not a libertarian no. thing. Like, it just isn't. So, like, um, yeah, if people think of the independent path as being libertarian, it's not really. I mean, it is the least – It is the it is the ending that has the least clear – system of governance because it's kind of like really what happens is you remove, you remove all of the major power figures. And so what you're left with is all the minor power players who are much more, if not inherently egalitarian, they're just not that strong. Like they're not strong enough to push at anyone else out. And so they all just kind of stand around in the, in the not ruins, but they stand around in what's left and they go like, well, I guess we're in charge now. <laughs> and and none of them, none of them really like bend the others to their will. They're just kind of like, well, we're all here. So I guess we got to figure this out, um, which is, is intentionally, it's very vague because again, none of these, none of these groups uh, had um, like a preconceived, like, oh, we're going to take over and we're going to do this. It's that all the people that looked like they were going to take over are suddenly gone. Mm. And so they just go like, oh shit. Like <laughs> it's just us and the people. And so I guess we got to help everybody just keep living. Um, so that's, that's really how it's left. It's, it's, um, I, I'm not saying you're wrong. If you think it's libertarian, <laughs> but please look again. Just look at the evidence. So <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Please look again. <laughs> um, Liv, I think there's, uh, we've gotten through a lot of stuff and, and I know it's like all, it's all the, it's all the little things. Um, and I have one more follow-up question eventually, but I think we should probably get to the important thing in this podcast, even though it's, it's getting a little long. I think we should get to the thing we were always planning on talking about. Um, and you had some questions for Josh about, <laughs> uh, 
both uh, well at least your favorite person yes i wanted to uh, talk about kate bush, kate talk about bush. Kate bush. Mm. <laughs> what do you want to talk right. about kate bush? <laughs> she's great i don't know i mean i don't know she's uh she's great um i will say it's a deadly i feel like it's a deadly karaoke choice mm. i think they all are for me <laughs> Well, so um, I am friends with Carla Zamanja from Fulbright, and every time we get together, we try to go do karaoke, and we, we do a wide range of stuff, and often we will make the mistake of saying, hey, <laughs> let's sing some Kate Bush, but you can't really sing like Kate Bush at all. Like, I mean, it's Kate Bush. So we get in and we try to sing and then we're like, oh my God, this is really, it's like trying to sing Annie Lennox. Okay. You're yeah. like, oh, I can't. And you're like, no, actually it's awful. Like you're, you're murdering it. And um, so, yeah, it's one of those things where I love, I love listening to it. Every time I try to sing along or I try to do it at karaoke, it's deadly because her voice is so unique. And some of the sort of acrobatics she does in her songs are so difficult that, it's best left to prose. <laughs> yeah. I think that people can do like some lovely covers, but I think that you kind of have to do your own arrangement. I don't think that you can try to just like take it wholesale. No. And some songs are easier, like running up that hill. Not that's fairly straightforward. Wuthering Heights. Take it easy. Like you're, you're gonna, <laughs> it's dangerous is what I'm saying. I'm not saying you can't do it. It's just a dangerous path. Well, and there's also, I mean, karaoke is one of those things where, like, if you if you pick the wrong song, you can pick the wrong song for so many reasons. There's so many pitfalls. Like, definitely, people definitely. always pick like songs that have extremely long intros, or like that's yeah. I picked an Iron Maiden song one time that I could hit the notes on, but like all the parts where there are like guitar solos are terrible. So like <laughs> they're really bad. Yeah, yeah. It's there's so many pitfalls. So I, I, there's a couple of things that I've not, I've noticed. Let's talk about karaoke. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I made a mistake of, so I, um, I actually originally went to school for singing and, um, but my voice is, I'm, I'm 43 now. So my voice has dropped and I forget that. <laughs> and then I'm like, Oh, I can sing this U2 song. No, I can't. I can't hit that note anymore. So that's a, that's a, a sad discovery in the middle of a song. The other thing I've noticed is that if you're in a booth, it doesn't matter what, how long the intros or the solos are because you have other people around. You can just hang around and you can talk with them. Deadly, deadly mistake is to go to a karaoke bar. Ooh, I can't even imagine. And, and then you have like a really long intro or, or worse, a really long outro. So you're just kind of standing around like a dope while this long exit plays. And you're like, well, that's that, I guess. I um actually just did a karaoke bar this weekend with a friend of mine. She did Luftballoon uh, off Deutsch, and she did a great job. That's a great crowd-pleasing song. I did some Radiohead. Not as big of a crowd-pleaser. Did you do, did you, do creep? you know, I thought about that. I often do that. I did Karma Police. Oh, yeah. Which it's a little quiet. Is, I, yeah, it's a little quiet and also it kind of has this long tail and I was standing there like a dope, like, uh-huh. Yep. That's the end of the song. It's going to be, yep. 
all right, well, see you guys. It's like the video where the uh, the car gets set back on fire, like the guy lights the thing. Yeah. Back, but instead of that, it's just uh, it's you Me being standing. set on fire by the uh, by everyone in the audience. By the audience. Well, <laughs> thankfully, it was late, and everyone was kind of just like oh, winding good. down. Anyway, good. So, yeah. Yeah, I remember going out of a booth at a karaoke bar. Um, the, like one of the only times I ever went to one was for a friend's birthday, and we we had a booth, and it was fun. But then I went out and like just the this sheer intensity of the actual open area of the bar was like, I could never do this. It's um, I think the thing is, when you start to realize how little you pay attention to people on stage, then you can internalize that and be like, hey, no one gives a shit what I'm doing either. Mm. Like if you're bad, people just ignore you, really. <laughs> um, and if you're good, then they might pay attention. But the worst, I mean, unless you're truly awful people just kind of tune you out and start talking to your, to their friends. So that's my advice is the next time you're in a karaoke bar and you're thinking, Oh man, I don't know if I can do this song or I might screw it up. Nobody see my fear is that I would be so bad that I would be the person that people pay attention to. Yeah. You'd end up on the internet, man. I don't think I'd ever end up on the internet. I don't know. I, I, the other thing you can do is just have a lot of energy and embrace absurdity and then people find you entertaining even if you're really bad that also definitely works so i would encourage people to embrace that as well because i've seen people like karaoke who are not singers should not really i mean i'm not going to say not be singing i don't want to discourage anyone from singing but like you know they got some problems but they don't care or they're very drunk and so alcohol is making them not care and they get up there and they go crazy and everyone has a good laugh and it's fine. That's a good way to look yeah. at things. I'll, I'll, yeah. yeah, I think I would have to very actively sweet, try yeah. to believe that. Um, but I will work on it. Give it a whirl. <laughs> you seem like a very experiential guy, Josh. Like the the way that you under the way that you explain New Vegas and the way that you were sort of talking about like karaoke there, it seems like it's one of those things like you, you kind of imagine that like, you know, um there is there is a a way of living the world where like you have people tell you what it is. And then there's another one where you kind of do the thing. And it seems like doing the thing is more important to you. Yes. And actually that's, um, that's kind of a foundation of a lot of my design. Hmm. If that makes sense. Like I don't. So a thing that I used to do, which a lot of designers do, especially in role-playing games is they design for paper. They like design for like this idea like they design around like a concept and they don't really stop to think about like, Hey, a human being is going to put their eyes on this and think about it and try to do something with it. Hmm. And when I review someone's design, I'm very often thinking about a perfectly intelligent, but inexperienced and ignorant person saying, Hey, I want to play this game. How do I do it? And if your rules or your mechanics hit them in the face like a brick wall, that is bad. And it doesn't matter how interesting or mathematically sound or whatever jerk off reason you have for designing things the way that you did. It doesn't matter because people don't play design docs. They don't play ideas. They play what you put in front of them. And that's an experience. And so I try to funnel all of my feedback about design through, I think about what are you trying to accomplish? (laughs) What are the limitations of the medium in which you are working? And then who's playing this and what is their experience going to be? 
Uh, and so thinking about, are you accomplishing these goals within the limitations that you've set for the audience that you've set out to make this game hmm. for? And if the answer is no, then go back and look at it again. And it's, it's, everything is about context. Like a lot of the design stuff that I look at, I actually look at other media. Like I really like a lot of the stuff that Charles Eames says about design that don't have anything to do with games. They have to do with much higher level stuff. Like design is about um, needs and limitations. Like if you step back and think about like, I'm trying to do this and my limitations are this, that helps guide what you're doing. I think a lot of people get so close to their documents. They get so close to their ideas that they don't think about how people play through things. Mm -hmm. And at the end of things, that's what matters. Like it doesn't, and that's, you know, again, whether you're like, you know, I can say things about what I intended, for example, which this is, you know, we can get into, you know, whatever death of author stuff, but like, <laughs> you know, I, when I'm, when I'm thinking about how we present, like there was a, like, okay, so here's a, here's a thing in dead fire. We have a culture that is, somewhat actually no it's heavily pacific islander i really need it to is play dead fire by the way this is it's something that is on my list and i'm very excited to finally get to by the end of the year we just came out with a, uh, a patch for it which we've we've been patching the game a lot so it's become much 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 more playable over time um and but that we have this culture the juana who are based on pacific islander um cultures not one in particular and we also try to be very careful about a lot of things but you know it's one of those things where it doesn't matter what my intent like i made the or uh, i directed the expansion for uh new vegas uh, honest hearts and it wound up giving the impression of some racist shit that was absolutely not my intention doesn't really matter what my intention was it matters that people viewed it in a negative light and so I can apologize for that and I can try to do better in the future. But if I, if I focus on like, well, it wasn't my intent, who gives a shit? Like that doesn't, that doesn't make anything better for me. It doesn't make anything better for them. Um, and when thinking about like the Juana culture for dead fire, you know, there was only so much thinking about it from my own perspective. Then I had to go and talk to someone who is actually of, of Asian descent and say, Hey, does this come across? I, I should have asked more people. But it's about like, hey, how do how does another person perceive this? How is another person going to experience this? Um, whether you're talking about a game mechanic, how a person receives a cultural representation, how a certain gender or a sexual orientation is presented, how a political viewpoint is presented, this is all about individual perceptions and experiences. And so I really, 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 really try to get designers to step back from their ideas and think about how people are going to process and use this stuff. That's very cool. Thank you. Liv, you had a, you, we were talking earlier, you had a, you had a video. <laughs> oh, well, it was kind of related to the Kate Bush thing. Um, just because I don't think we've ever, I don't think we've ever talked about this and I feel yeah. like it's a pressing gaming issue. Uh, well, I think, I think the okay. idea of like considering personal experience is very, is very um, I think, true to Kate Bush. I think that's fair. I think there's a, um, this was a much less serious question. <laughs> okay. um, well, well, I was just going to bring up um, I don't know I feel like dance is such like a important part of like Kate Bush's whole presentation and we have never talked about dances in video games 
That's true. We really true. haven't. And and Persona's coming out with its dance game in like two days. There's so oh, much shit. dancing yeah. on the table. Um, nice. And sometimes literally. Yeah. Um, a lot in World of Warcraft, there's dancing on the table. Um, I don't know. What, do y'all have favorite <laughs> dances in video games? Do y'all like dances in video games? Oh, yeah, that's a good um, I can't think of a lot of... Like, I do know that... Uh, what was it? Pirates? Pirates has dancing minigames. Oh, really? And Sid Meier's Pirates? Yeah. Yes. I believe so. Yes. Um, yeah, where you, you wind up going to, like, highfalutin dances, and you dance with, like, you know, the governor's daughter or whatever. I can't remember the specifics, but, like, it's an actual minigame. And how you do... Because you're this, you know, like dashing pirate dude or whatever and so how well you do um determines how well the the lady you dance with responds to you mm. um so it's it's very appropriate for a swashbuckling game like pirates um i also like i guess the thing is like i like um you know stuff in games where i don't know you know for some reason i can't remember if there was actual dancing in night in the woods or if i'm just remembering it one of the things I really love, I really love Night in the Woods. Um, and one of the things I really like about it is that May is in um, this band and she's the bassist and she's like canonically like really bad. Like, yeah. like to do well in the minigame, you have to actually like be bad. And I actually really like that idea of like, no, like your role in the story is you're the, you're the awful bassist. And I think that that's really charming. I love talking, it's not the uh, same as dancing. But. When I talked to Scott about that, um, he said he was like, yeah, the I was like, it's so hard to play that game. And he was like, yeah, the point is like you you aren't supposed to be good at playing the game because <laughs> you're you're, yeah. Mad, you're yeah. mad. I was like, oh, that's smart. <laughs> but I, I like I would love to see I would love to see like if if um, like to extend that, it'd be great if you could have like May like awkwardly dancing at a at a party or something like that or or like and then like you know as she gets drunker she like dances more awkwardly mm. i think that would be a very um that'd be cool that'd be wonderful i think greg may do some little dances i think that he does like wiggles Probably. and things yeah he definitely he's the most he's the most physically emotive he's the most physically emotive maybe 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 less than may but they're both pretty like jazzed up oh yeah um certainly more than angus and um and b be yeah definitely definitely i would say like the i i always think that i don't like it because i'm i'm not very good at dancing in real life um so i i feel nervous about dances in video games or i forget what the you know the hot key is for them so i don't like do them after i win or whatever um but my favorite and this is i've said this a million times now but one of my favorite games one of those formative games for me was uh uh jet grind radio on uh, the dreamcast and uh, mm-hmm. and that mostly is just a game about like being smooth and dancing and like you know skating yeah. as if you're dancing and and that feeling of just being able to like flow is very very intoxicating. <laughs> yeah, and I I mean I think that's a and I think that's a powerful fantasy, especially for people who aren't you know like in real life either whether they're not good or they don't feel they're good or they're self conscious about it. It's pretty cool to be able to then go into a video game and whether you're literally doing it something like DDR or if you're doing it through something that's a little le- more abstract, like, you know, jet set radio or something like mm-hmm. that. It's uh yeah, it's a very powerful feeling. Like it's like any, it's, it's like any other sort of power fantasy, but it's, it's less violent. 
<laughs> I guess, which is one of the it's nice either. things about like, it. Like, exactly. I know people, um, like, people are cool. like very down on like the Fortnite dancing and just like the meme aspect of it. But like, I, I work with kids and I see like one kid does one of the Fortnite dances and then like suddenly like all these other kids are around them like, okay, well, like let's do it together. And like, you teach me how to do it. You teach me how to do it better. And it's like all these kids that wouldn't have necessarily talked to each other, be teaching each other things otherwise, especially based around a video game, like just how that's come out. Well, and, and, and dancing, I mean, that's, that's like, incri- I mean, I, when I was, um, you know, granted I'm, old i'm you know 43 but like i went to dance classes when i was very young and obviously this was like in the early 80s and homophobia was rampant and so that's like not a thing that like was really looked up on and but to think that kids would be teaching each other dance stuff sort of excitingly that's cool like i mean Fortnite kind of drives me fucking crazy but like <laughs> yeah yeah the idea that kids like are teaching each other little goofy dances that's actually pretty neat they tried to teach me and i definitely can't do I, it like I, it's like all for them like i can't fall i absolutely oh, can't fall. Like, <laughs> yeah. a kid tries to teach me every single day and i just i can't do it i would it. never dare i like there was that there was a, a, a commercial going around from a um it was from a uh a uh cleveland area um solar power company um and they got like the, the you know they got the browns punter to talk or something like that and the commercial has like the the owner of the company and his kid dancing and doing like flossing basically but they're doing it really badly and someone was like <laughs> someone was like is that are they supposed to be flossing and i didn't even feel like i could make fun of them like, it's like that would be what it looks like if i flossed like it would be so bad yeah i would never do <laughs> not at all Josh, can I ask you, um, famously, you included a, uh, a forums, a, something awful forums related uh, Easter egg in Fallout 4, or you or, or someone else, I, I thought you were involved in it, which is the uh, Johnny Five Aces. Um, that was in New Vegas. Was that in yeah. New Vegas? I thought, okay, that makes more sense. Um, yep. Yeah, I, 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 for some reason in my head, it was in 4, but I, I've never run across it myself. I've never been able to find it. But the... Um, I, you know, I, I, I'm friends with some of the people who wrote like the FIAD posts that were like larger about that. Like, uh, and, and, you know, I of course love the, uh, the images and stuff. I, are there any other Easter eggs that like, it doesn't have to be forums culture, but like take, take like the, the, that kind of like charming internet culture, uh, that you kind of worked into any of your work, uh, any of your writing or any of your, any of your gaming. Cause it's so cool to see it like. It's so it's so pure, you know, like when you when you recognize and you're like, oh, my God, those are the four balls. And those are like that guy was playing cards and he's dead. That's Johnny Five Aces. That's amazing. I um. so it's funny. Um, I'm friends with uh, the guys who made Brigador. Uh, OK, Works, yeah. And they also put Johnny Five Aces as a pilot in That's that amazing. game. But they put in this they put in this full like fan fiction, this insane like fan fiction description and I saw it in game and it's like the character image. It's he's called Johnny five aces. So it's even less ambiguous. Whereas in fall of new Vegas, it's just this guy named Johnny. And if you like kind of read into it, you're like, Oh my God, it's you're him. Right. But this is, de- this is definitely Johnny five aces. His portrait looks exactly like the concept art. Um, there's this crazy fan fiction and I saw it. And I, I was laughing so hard. I was crying. And so that wasn't even, and so then 
in dead fire, we put the, <laughs> this crew member, I'm like, I'm going to keep it going. We have like Gianni Concasi, <laughs> who is again, Johnny five bases, but he's like this valiant, this valiant sailor. Um, and, uh, the other thing that I did recently that is very stupid, but I'm sticking by it is, um, there's an archmage in Pillars of Eternity named Tane. <laughs> and I was just thinking about Tane today. Oh god. That's so good. And and so in so I wrote someone was like, Hey Josh, can you like one of the designers here was like, Hey Josh, we have all these like names on spells, but like what are the archmages like? Because they were thinking about doing like an archmage related DLC and some other stuff. And so I'm like, okay, well, I'll just give you the basic high-level idea for all these characters. So I wrote down Minaletta and Archimere, all these other characters, and Tane only has one spell in the game, which is Tane's Chaotic Orb. <laughs> and or orbs are like just a funny thing. Yeah. And so I wrote I, I wrote that he was a silly wizard um, infatuated with like chaos and orbs. And then um, I said, and then the last sentence was canonically looks like Paul Rudd. <laughs> And I said, if any, if he is ever illustrated, he has to look like Paul Rudd. And um, so recently, so he's going to be in this upcoming DLC for Deadfire. And they did one portrait and I'm like, oh shit, that's exactly Paul Rudd. That's a little too like Paul, Paul Rudd's Rudd. going to know. So then they're like, yeah, then they like walked it back a little bit, but um but I was very happy with the revised version, which still has essential <laughs> Tane salary man quality. And uh, I, I posted it on Twitter with uh, now Tane I can get into. And um, and then I had to send out the meme because there were there were some people on the on the team who were not aware of the salary man Tane meme. They were so like, yeah, Tane got everyone back. Is, I don't know why you keep laughing so much when you say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so uh, that's that's probably the only other like really goofy internet -y oh, thing. Oh, that's really good. Um, but I, yeah, I love... Circling back to I dancing. <laughs> Just can't... It's so stupid, but uh, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, no, there you go. <laughs> I even, I, I was like, I, I, we, we don't have time to do like, well, we did do big head mode in Pillars, which wow. I was very happy with. Um, and it's in Deadfire as well. But like, when we were starting to do all this Tane stuff, I started to get like grand delusions. And I'm like, Dude, make it so that if when you get to the end of character creation, if you name your character Nude Tane, it like pops up a warning <laughs> and then like changes your character. Like it, it just got really out of control. And then I'm like, no, no, no. I have to. Yes. Nobody has time for this nonsense. I have to stop. It'll be okay. Paladin Let's leave it at green the. Bean. <laughs> yeah, we just leave it at the funny looking, the, 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 the guy who's pretty much Paul Rudd, but. So good. That's it. Well, I. We've kept you here for about an hour. I, I actually, that was my last question about Johnny five aces. Uh, Liv, do you have any other questions for Josh? Um, I mean, sure. Plenty, but, but they can, they can I mean, they, they, give us a couple. <laughs> I mean, I would love to talk about Kate Bush more, but I don't want to hold you just to talk about Kate. Um, we can, you know what, you know, let's, uh, let's talk about the, how many collabos did Peter Gabriel and Kate Bush wind up doing? Yeah. Was it, I mean, don't give up. Oh, don't give up was all that was coming to mind immediately. Red Rain. I I thought there were a couple oh, of other yeah, ones. Sure. I mean, that's a that's a power collab right there. 
It's really, really good. It's like exactly the two people I want collaborating together. Oh, yes. I've seen the video. Have video you ever seen? So did you know that Lady Gaga did a cover of that song? Have you seen the video? Yes. With, um, gosh, I don't even know who oh, it was. It was up? never, I, I don't think it was really released. It was, it was before she was really super famous. Um, and they recorded, uh, the music video too. And it's like the same music video, but Lady Gaga's in it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'll have to huh. Google it. Cause it's like really no one that I know. So there is a cover of that song that I really like, which is Herbie Hancock with John Legend and Pink, which sounds insane. That uh, sounds really the truly Lady insane. Gaga covers with the Midway State, it's really good. which it's I do really not know good. who that is. There's also a good cover of it on the the Peter Gabriel um, that double cover album, which is like you know like one disc of him covering other artists and then them covering him too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's like um, the Don't Give Up cover is Feist, I think Feist and someone. Ooh. Yeah, well, you'll have Ooh, to check it out. Feist. It's very good. I love Feist. Um, she does the Peter Gabriel part, and then um, the guy does Kate's part. Did you know that Peter Gabriel? Actually, I guess this was like so. Peter Gabriel did this. David Bowie did this. Peter Gabriel. So he did his his album Melt. He did a German version where someone translated all the lyrics and then he sang everything in German. And it was released in West Germany as Ein Deutsches Album. And it's just, it's exactly everything on the, on Melt, but German. Huh. And when he's, when he does, when he goes on tour, even now, when he goes on tour in Germany. How do you feel about the, the translations? Um, good because they, he didn't do them. Um, <laughs> I mean, sometimes, like sometimes those, cause I don't, I don't actually know if he, how fluent he is in German. Um, but someone else actually did the, the translation of them. Um, and they seem pretty good. Like it was actually interesting cause my friend, when we went out and did karaoke, we were, we were talking about Neun and Neunzig Luftballoon and, um, the band like famously hates the American or the English translation of it because it takes what's kind of like an anti-war kind of song and turns it into just a bunch of nonsense. And so they like refuse to ever perform the, perform the English version. Cause they're just like, this is stupid. Like you made it into just this meaningless pop song, but Neunzig Luftballoon in, uh, in German is like actually has a, cool meaning in its lyrics absolutely so, and it's just, it's so interesting yeah, it's such a different art form um to have like a translation especially of a song yeah songs are difficult i recently as i was as i was talking about on twitter i um i was laughing translations are really weird like uh now we're gonna go way off topic but um i watched uh tin drum which is uh based on a german novel and it's very strange, the, the, but the in the novel. middle of it, there's Gutergrass mm-hmm. novel, yeah. And um, in the in the movie, there's a part where there are these two Nazi soldiers talking to each other, and this guy says to the subtitle said, <clears throat> "Are you blind?" And what the officer actually said is, "Haben Sie Tomaten auf deinen Augen?" Which is, "Do you have tomatoes on your eyes?" And I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) And so I went on Twitter and I'm like, ah, that's so hilarious. That's so funny. And all these German people are like, what's funny about it? 
understood so like, idioms. That's just a thing that we say. I'm like, what? Do you have they're, to? Wow. Yeah, they're just like, yeah. Like, I say that all the time. And I'm like, what? Really? And some people are even surprised that we don't but say we could. that in English. And I'm like, this could no, be- dude, we don't say do you have tomatoes on your eyes. <laughs> we have a starting ground for it. We could. And I, th- I think you might get it. But yeah, all these Germans were like, no, dude, that's, yeah. Since time immemorial, we say, do you have tomatoes in your eyes? If we're asking if you're having trouble seeing something. I was like, all right, if you say so. I mean, we have all sorts of stupid idioms, so I guess I can't really judge. I mean, I think all idioms are good in their way. Anything that's mutually understood is good in its way. But yeah, translation, it's hard. (laughs) I once said the translation was really easy to a friend of mine in college just to rile them up. And they got so angry with me. Good decision. You repeated it now, though, so. (laughs) One of... (laughs) Well, I, I, I said it is as a warning. One of my greatest accomplishments was in gaming is that I wrote the label copy for a fake German beer in Tacoma (laughs) that no one has probably ever read. (laughs) It's the stupid story about like these, these uh, I think they're Franciscan, these Franciscan monks and how they craft their beer and, live in fear of the Lord and all this stuff. And it was very hard for me because I'm not, I'm not a native speaker of German and it took me forever. And I finally was like, here you go. And I gave it to Carla and she put it in the game and I don't think anyone's ever seen it. It's great though. It was hard. It's really hard. But it's kind of amazing (laughs) that you did it. Well, it took me a while. It took me far longer. I sat down, I'm like, Oh, I should be able to bust this out. And then I was like, God, how do I even (laughs) phrase this? And then I had to run it by a German friend, and he was like, "Ah, it's close, but German's hard." So <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. Rough stuff. Well, Josh, thank you so much for being on, and thank you for talking to us about—I mean, everything. This has been great. Yeah, uh, it was great. So Thanks people can find me. you at J.E. Sawyer. People should keep an eye out for the Pillars tabletop game. Yeah. In, in, in so. Time. Um, <laughs> In time. So, yeah. So what happened was during during the Pillars or the Deadfire Fig campaign, my boss, Fergus, said, hey, I want to offer a starter guide for a tabletop game. Um, do you want to do that? And I said, yes, if I can do whatever the hell I want and I don't have to really listen to anybody <laughs> because... Well, it doesn't matter. But I said, yes, but I'm going to do, I'm going to make a whatever game, however crazy I want, I'm going to do it. And he was like, fine. So I made the starter guide and the starter guide was like 30 pages and that was okay. But I'm like, I'm going to keep going. And my goal, I really want to wind up publishing a big, stupid hardcover that's like, you know, three or 400 pages. <laughs> nice. Um, and it's a, it's a, and so far I'm at about 138 pages. Um, and it's a crazy system. It's been a lot of fun and we've been playing it internally. And some of the stuff that I set out to do is a little too crazy. So we're dialing it back and making it easier to actually use, but it's a lot of fun and I want people to actually give it a whirl. So, um, I'm getting ready to do, uh, another update of the rules, um, sometime before Christmas. So whether people want to actually play it or just look through it and send me hate mail, both are fine. <laughs> But it's it's coming. It's coming hopefully yeah, before the holidays. I'm excited. We're gonna have to live. We're gonna have to play this. 
We're going to have to yeah, find people to play this with on, on, on uh, an episode. I do hope to also have a starter adventure for people to, like, if they're just like, I don't know anything about this, then they can just, like, take pre-made characters in a pre-made adventure and play through it to kind of get yeah. a feel. So, especially for people who don't have experience with tabletop role-playing games, hopefully that will be very be great. Well, Josh, this has been great. Uh, come back anytime. Come on the main show anytime. We'd uh, love to talk more with you. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. Yeah. Awesome. That'd be great. Yeah. Yeah, thank absolutely. You. Thank you. Woo!